Hey, this is Frank Hannon. I'm the lead guitarist of Tesla, and you're listening to Focus on Metal. Hey, Metalheads, Scott Thompson here. We are back from our winter break, so prepare for your weekly dose of Focus on Metal. Yep, finally back in the studio chair, recording more great Focus on Metal for you. And I got to say that it's been a pretty enjoyable uh, break and definitely was tough to actually put the headphones back on and sit down in front of the workstation to record another episode. But, you know, Richie hit me up and said, you know, people are starting to ask, hey, when's the next episode? When are you guys going back on the air? And I almost decided to try to get this episode ready for last week. But looking at the schedule, looking at all the craziness going on with everything else in my life right now, it was like, I can't really guarantee I'm going to have it done. So I told Richie, yep. This week would be the week we would go back on the air with brand new episodes of Focus on Metal as we begin our 2021 adventure and also our uh, impending march towards episode 500. Always seems to be one of those milestones for shows and I really should go back and find out exactly how many there are because even though this one is episode 487, there's been a lot of bonus ones. We put a ton of bonus ones out over uh, last summer while people were in quarantine. So when we add all those in, I think we're already pretty close to uh, the Magic 500. But that's the future. Right now, let's talk about what we have in store for you this week. So at the beginning of the show, you heard Frank Hannon from Tesla giving the old focus on metal ID. We don't have Frank on this week, but we have on his bandmate, Brian Wheat, for the second time. We had Brian on for the acoustic album for a quick interview. This week, we have him back on for uh, his book that came out. It's called Son of a Milkman, My Crazy Life with Tesla little book that he did with uh, Chris Epping. Also has a forward in there from uh, from Joe Elliott from Def Leppard. So uh, 208 pages, an easy rock and roll read. If you're in a Tesla, you're into uh, you know all the different things that Brian's gone through, then definitely go out and pick yourself up a copy of Son of a Milkman. And obviously we're running this this week. That means that uh, even though we've been on break, Richie has been doing all kinds of stuff, not the usual huge volume of stuff that he's done almost every break. So he's been able to have a little bit of time for himself, which is great. This one here he did fairly recently, and it's also a really unusual one. And it's showing that Richie really is coming into his own as an interviewer, that he had the usual spot with Brian to do the, uh, you know, the press interview for the book. And then, uh, you know, Brian was really digging it so much that he ended up calling Richie back and gave him another chunk of interview. So I think that uh, this may be the uh, the longest interview out there right now for the book with Brian Wheat. And all because it seems like uh, Richie has not lost his touch in uh, falling into luck. And also, before we get rolling, just want to say that a little bit of the audio quality here is a little bit of a mess. Brian was kind of low, and Richie was kind of his usual level. And in trying to level all that stuff out, it ended up with a lot of spiky noise in there as well. I tried to clean it up as best I could, but uh, yeah, it's just it's the way it is. No Tesla pun intended. So with that, why don't I turn it over to uh, Richie and 
Brian Wheat of Tesla. I'm good, man. Spoke to you earlier this year to uh, to help promote the acoustic record, so it's nice to talk to you again. Yeah, you too, buddy. Yeah. So, so before we get into it, I'm going to let you know, I'm not going to ask you about Tommy Skeel, Paul McCartney, Jimmy Page, the box set, the fire, or why now is the right time to write the book, because I figured everyone else has been asking you about all of those. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. <laughs> okay. So you're not going to get any of that from me. Um, all right. Fantastic. Yeah. So I do want to ask you, has the band ever been approached from a book publisher to write a history of the band? Uh, not that I know of. Not that I know of. Okay. Would you consider yourself a big reader of musicians' memoirs? No, not really. I No, no, not, not really at all. Okay. Are, are you a big reader anyway or of no. books? You're not? <laughs> no. No. Okay. I'm not a I'm not a big reader. Okay. I mean, you know, like I have a hard time actually reading. I have a hard time focusing on, on the pages. Uh I mean I can read just fine, but when I go to read a book I it's hard for me to pay attention. So I think it's part of my ADHD or something. Okay. So when you went to write a book like this if you hadn't read many other memoirs from other musicians and the way they were laid out, you probably would have heard about them, though. Was there any particular way you wanted to have this book done that was a little bit different to the other ones that you'd heard about? Well, I think I think in the sense that, um, you know, we didn't make the book all about all the war stories of, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. And the fact that I talk about, you know, the anxiety disorder and depression and bulimia and the, the autoimmune disease and the fact that, uh, you know, I speak a lot about my personal life as far as being the illegitimate son of the milkman and being up on, you know, for adoption for a week or so and things like that. I, I think, you know, I, I, I mean, cause I wrote it as well with Chris, Chris Epting. He was the co-writer. Hmm. So, so I started the book about, I don't know, eight years ago, seven years ago. And basically I started with this guy, Pete Makowski in England who used to write for Sounds Magazine. And coincidentally, we have got a ton of audio with Pete Mikowski, uh, probably about two hours worth that you guys have yet to hear, but hopefully you'll hear it in the next coming months. And we never quite finished it. We started it, and we started kind of like this chronological thing. Um, you know, kind of did it in chronological order. But when I read it come back, it, it kind of read in the sense that I sounded like I was an English guy because <laughs> he was English. Yeah. Right. So I was like, well, that's not really me. You know, I want it to be in my voice, how I speak as if you were, you were talking to me or I was telling you the story. And I think we achieved that in the end. Um, and then after, after Pete Mikowski, I started another draft with this guy, Ken Nicholson, who used to work for Tesla and many different 
capacities. And he's an old friend of mine. He's only since us like 14 years old. And we kind of finished that, that version of the book. And when we sent it around to get some feedback, people said it read like a, uh, like an interview, more like if someone was just sitting down and interviewing me, which is what I had him do basically. So then about a year and a half ago, I took what I had done with Pete Bukowski and what I had done with Kenny and started working on the version that's the one that you have with Chris Epstein. Okay. Um, did you consider at any stage just sitting down yourself and writing it? No. No, because I'm not a writer. I mean, it's my story, you know, but I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a writer. I mean, you know, for one thing, I'm very bad in English. So that would be a big problem. I could tell the story just fine. Write it, you know, there'd be all kinds of grammar and spelling (laughs) (laughs) problems. I'm very good in math. I'm good with numbers, but I wasn't very good in English. So, uh, no, I would never really attempt to actually write it myself. Okay. You know, even, even though I'm, you know, now I'm thinking about writing another book, it'll be with Chris Epting because I like the way that me and him work together and he gets, he gets me, he gets what I'm saying and he, he puts it across in the right way. Some of the things that people have said to me is when they read this book, they feel like they're sitting in a room having a beer with me and I'm just telling them a story. And that's kind of what I wanted it to be like. Mm. So I'm glad that we, we, you know, people are getting that from the book. Yeah. Did it cross your mind at any stage, though, that, you know, writing a book, there's, there's stress involved in it. And you make you make it no secret in the book that the stress can bring out your autoimmune disease. Um, that actually doing the book might raise the stress levels that might create you know make you get sick. Did did you think about that at all? No, 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 because I didn't find it stressful. I mean, you know, maybe people find it stressful if they're actually uh, an author. You know, and they've got this thing they have to live up to, you know, because their last book was successful or maybe it wasn't. They're trying to make this one. I, I was, it was virgin territory for me. So I was just telling my story, hmm. my, my life story. And I didn't, I did, it didn't stress me out. I wasn't, you know, I, I wasn't having anxiety from that in any, you know, way. Okay. Brian, when you brought up the idea of a book to Jeff, Frank, Dave, and Troy. What were their initial reaction? Uh, well, Jeff told me, write whatever you want, because it's all true. Uh, Frank was like, cool, man, that's great. I, I, I want to do a book one day. I'm like, cool, you should. Uh, Troy was like, uh, yeah, cool. Far out. And Dave, I didn't really say anything, you know. I mean, I, you know, I don't, I didn't really, I didn't really talk too much to him about it because I wasn't. It wasn't like, look, I'm writing a book on Tesla. It's like the book. I make it very clear is my version of what I saw and lived being a member of Tesla through my eyes, 
and how I remember it. Not now, if you were to read their book, they probably would have a completely different perspective of of how it went down or what went down. You know, so it's just it's me telling my ver- my version of it, but it's it's not meant to be a book about Tesla the band. That's just part of my life story, Tesla. Yeah, there but, are other things in it. Yeah, but you you can see, Brian, that people will look at this book as being the first book by an actual member of the band that's been officially released, and they might look at that as being a, a Tesla book, and they look at you know, well, how does Brian see the legacy of the band, and and is he airing dirty well, laundry? It's, it's, but it's just it's just my view. Yeah. I agree. And they'll either like it or they won't. Mm. You know, I mean, I mean, they may disagree with how I view it or how I saw it. I mean, you know, I told somebody the other day that I didn't think Bust the Nut was that great of an album. That I thought it was a bit disjointed. I didn't think it was as strong as some of the other ones. And, you know, a bunch of fans ganged up on me on Facebook about it. <laughs> And I'm like, well, fuck, I, I should be entitled to have my own opinion about a record that, you know, I wrote five songs on. Yeah. And half the record. And so, I mean, I can't control what people think. All, I, all I'm saying is like, look, if you're interested in how I, in my view of how this went down, you know, or my life and what I've gone through, and if it helps you or, you know, then I'm happy to speak about you know, whether it's depression or anxiety or, you know, uh, you know, ulcerative colitis, whatever, you know, I'm happy to speak about it if it helps somebody. If someone wants to take my version of this is how it went down to be the law, well, that's up to them, you know, or, or the Bible of Tesla, but it's not. I, I, you know, I'm not saying this is the, the Tesla biography the mm. I think someone else has to write that yeah uh, Brian you bring up the fact that you know you, you you addressed all your personal issues that you've had with the stress and the autoimmune disease and the colitis and all that but one of the things I, I read very early on in the book is that a couple of the guys in the band w- didn't want you in the band because you had weight issues did that make you want to address the issues that followed that with any of the band members that you, you kept it private? Um, I don't know. I mean, you know, uh, what, what do you mean? Did I want to address that with them? No, but, but like what, when they brought up in the, in the when you brought it up in the book about two of the guys in the band were looking at you as being overweight, and that they wanted to replace you. Um, did that mean then that if anything, if you had an issue in the future with anything else health wise, that you didn't really want to bring it up with them because they might look at it negatively? Uh, no, no. I mean, everyone was well aware what I what I've gone through, you know, as far as the stuff, you know? Hmm. Um, no, I mean, you know, look, I, I, I don't, I'm not looking for sympathy or anything. And I don't complain, you know, I mean, I just did my job and my job was to get thin, you know, back 
in the day when we needed to be and and uh you know so you know uh, if you put any of us on a scale these days we all be <laughs> in violation uh you know but fuck's sakes it's 36 years down the road yeah yeah uh, no, I wasn't, you know, I mean, I, at the time, you know, we didn't really talk much about things. We had a, I think I, I say in the book too, that early on we had a hard time communicating with each other, you know, which is why we broke up and, and, and stuff. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's a completely different band in the last 20 years than it was the first 10 years of our career. Um, you you bring up the Metallica documentary, and of course they had Phil Towle, who was the, the band counselor. And you, when you did into the now, you you got you got a counselor in to help you guys. But back then you were managed by Bernstein and Mensch, who also managed Metallica. No, um, we weren't. No, we weren't. No, but I'm no. Go, I, I'm saying the first time around. Um, yeah, the first time around. Yeah. yeah so did did mention Bernstein ever? offered to get a counselor in to help you before you broke up for Bust the Nut. No, no, no. They they never they never did shit. Do you think it do you think it might have helped? At the time, yeah, maybe it would have helped. I mean, you know, when we broke up, they didn't try to put us back together. Okay. You know, they were I think they were tired of, of our bullshit. You know, that's what I say in the book as well. I think they were they were like, you guys are too much trouble. And, you know, we don't make that much money off you. Okay. That, you know, I, I, I honestly, I mean, that's the truth. I just don't think that if we were Def Leppard or we were Metallica and they were, you know, we were that big, maybe they would have put more effort in trying to keep us together. But, you know, it wasn't a year before we broke up that Chris Cliff Bernstein told me, you know, our career was through. We were done. You know, so they didn't try to keep us together. We were kind of, you know, that last kind of, I don't know, 94, 93, 95, we were on our own pretty much. You know, we were just, they had us out on the road doing what we were doing and and, you know, Cliff, I remember Cliff telling me in a phone call that, you know, well, it's done for you. You know, music has changed and people don't care anymore. Wow. And, yeah, it was, you know, it was kind of hard to follow. So, you know, I think, you know, when we did break up, we were pretty uh, demoralized as far as, you know, we'd come from from the first four albums of being you know, rock radio's champion to all of a sudden no one cared anymore. And it felt like it was overnight, but, you know, look, it makes you tougher. I think the band breaking up was the best thing that happened to us. It Mm. taught us, it taught us, you know, what we had and, you know, that we needed to respect and cherish it more. And uh, obviously, you know, one of us didn't. And he's not around anymore. We're not going to talk about him. Nope. But you know the the band that sits there today completely, you know, respects and cherishes what we have. And you know, especially now with this COVID thing, I think it's even put that instilled that in us even more. I mean, 
when we do get back together, there'll be less grant things taken for granted that happen, you know, over the years. Because you, you again, you see how it can just be wiped out and taken away. Mm. I just want to ask you another question about Peter mentioned Cliff Bernstein, and it's something that you brought up in the book. Um, you bring, you say that there was some things you listened to and some things that you didn't that they told you back then. Uh, mm-hmm. What advice did they give you that you didn't listen to and should have? Is there anything that stands out? Well, they they always told us we should worry more about what we were doing with our career, and. You know, we were on this roll, I think, of four platinum successful albums. And I think they were thinking more big picture, more long term and stuff. And we weren't really paying attention. We were just kind of in the moment, if you will, of what we were doing, believing, you know, in our own hype or whatever it was that, that we were going through at the time. And I think, you know, hindsight in 2020, we should have listened to them more, but we figured it out and we had to figure it out on our own once we got back together in 2000. So eventually we did figure out what they were trying to say to us, but, um, you know, at the time we were pretty hard headed and, you know, they didn't, you know, if they said, you know, it's just like when they said busting up wasn't, wasn't really good enough or wasn't wasn't up to snuff and you know we 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 were like no fuck you this is great Mm. you know you know i mean maybe you know we were listening to him but who knows i don't think it would have changed anything you know what i mean it's easy to sit there and talk about these things 30 years later 25 years later at the time you know who knows had we listened to them would that record came out better i I don't know i don't think so i think it was the record that needed to be made at the time yeah Brian, I want to bring up Sandy Soraya because you bring it up in the book, okay? Um, Now, I interviewed her last year. so I just just spoke to her about a half hour. So I I want to ask you about when you were were with her, was Mm -hmm. it really important to you that she was involved in the music business as well and that she'd understand what it was like that you were doing as a career? Was it important to me that she was in the music? No, that, yeah. No, I just happened to meet her and she was a singer in a band. Okay. Um, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I tried to help her, you know, I, by hooking her up with Peter and Cliff and, and he, they managed her on her second album. But, um, you know, it just happened when I met her that, she was this girl in a band and, you know, we fell in love. We were kids and, you know, we tried to be married and it, it didn't work out. And, and, you know, we were really young, Yeah. you know, in our mid twenties. So, you know, and she was trying to make it and I was in this band that was doing pretty well and I was gone or she was gone. You know, it just things happen, but, you know, she's a great, great friend of mine i mean to this day she's one of my best friends like i said i just spoke to her this afternoon before i called you nice um i I, you know i i I always hoped that she would have made it you know and and but i think she's happy i know she's happy she loves her children she's got a great family Hmm. you know her and brendan and and they, they got you know five beautiful kids and she's an excellent mother and 
I, I know she's happy. There's part of her that still wants to sing, and maybe she will again one day. Who knows? That, that, that's yeah. up to her, and only she will. I've encouraged her to do it, but only Sandy can can say if she'll ever sing yeah. again professionally. Yeah, Brian, one of the things prominent throughout the whole book is Def Leppard's role with the band. Uh, but one of the things you didn't bring up in the book, and I want to ask you, do you remember... Um, do you remember who called you to tell you Steve Clark had died? Yeah, uh, it was Cliff. Okay. And I, you, you, how did you? Were you surprised? Because you no. knew you knew him pretty well. Well, I, I knew him as well as I knew the other leopard guys, I, and I knew what was going on with him. Yeah. You, you know, everyone in in that Q Prime family, you know, knew he was struggling and having having problems. Uh, no, I wasn't surprised. I was sad about it. Um, but we, we, you know, we knew that you know, at that time he was not doing well, hmm. and uh, you know he had been in and out of whatever rehab that they had tried to put him into a couple of times. And, you know, he was just going, oh man, this isn't going to end good. Yeah. Yeah. I have one more question for you. Um, you said in the book that Frank is more organic than you when it comes to songwriting and that you need to work on ideas more. Uh, do you find it difficult to let go of songs when, when, when they're done then? Or are you a perfectionist? Mm. I'm probably more perfectionist, you know, because I have to work harder at it. Yeah. So I, I probably have a harder time letting it go. Frank, you know, he he cranks them out. He can he can he can you know he's very prolific. You know, he's a natural. Frank is a, a very natural, gifted uh, songwriter musician. I've had to work at it to kind of create my place. Hmm. If you will. What What about as now as the manager of the band? Like, would you see yourself now as a natural leader, or is that something you really had to work on as well? No, I think I was always kind of a natural leader for the band. I mean, I tell everybody, and Frank always tells everybody when we we first started the band, we were first together. It was just me and him, you know. He was the music, and I was the business. And you know, it's it's always kind of been that way. I mean, I tell people in the book too he taught me how to play in a large part because he was so much better than me i had to rise to a level to be able to play with him you know mm-hmm. so um yeah i was always kind of you know that guy kind okay. of managerial guy that kind of looked after everything and especially after we got back together in 2000 you know, yeah. we've had several different guys attempt to manage us, and and um, and then I I managed us for I don't know the last ten years or so. Well, from 2006 to about 2017, and now Mike Kobayashi, yeah, uh, that manages Def Leppard, manages Tesla as well. 
Nice. Well, Brian, I, I really enjoyed the book. I had more questions I wanted to ask you about Ross Halfen and all these other things. But well, about, yeah, you got a couple more? Come on, man. I'll, I'll go five minutes and the next guy. Fuck it. Okay, right. I want to ask you about Ross Halfen. You said in the book that that photographer, you, your name started cropping up on these diary entries a few years ago. And I'm thinking, is that the same Brian Wheat that's in, in Tesla? And um, you said in the book that you hated him the first time you met him. Um, what changed? Well, I didn't say we hated it. Well, he was an asshole. <laughs> but, it, you know, I mean, he's one of my best friends. Yeah. Um, you know, basically, we did this photo shoot with him, and he was kind of a dick. And we told Peter we didn't like him. And he said, well, just, you know, he's the best there is. Just give it back to him. If he gives you any shit, you just um, <laughs> fuck off back. And and then what happened was we went on, on tour in England with, with uh, Death Leopard on Hysteria, and I hit it off with Rob. I, I, you know, for whatever reason, I started hanging out with him, and we'd go, me and him and Steve Clark would go, you know, hang out, do whatever, you know, on this whole tour. And I've always been, you know, at that point on, I've always been real good friends with Ross. And, and you know, today I consider him one of my best friends. So. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I love him. Some people hate him. Some people say, how can you be his friend? I said, well, you don't know him like I know him. Mm, you, you probably wouldn't be painting on the photographs if it wasn't for Ross. Well, certainly the photographs, because he, he kind of gave me a camera and said, you know, go ahead and mess around. I used to always tell him I was the world's greatest iPhone photographer. <laughs> and he said, you know, you, you've got a really good eye. I, I mean, I don't know technical shit about cameras at all. Mm. So he says, you know, you know how to put together a picture, nice, you know, compose. And uh, and then he gave me a, a he gave me a, a Leica and he gave me a an Nikon. And uh, and then I started to develop that. And you know, from hanging out with him and going all over, you know, when you go to Ross, you know, all these places all over the world, cool places, you take pictures. And from that, I started, you know, this painting thing. Mm. So. Final question. One Ryan. more question. One, then one I more. Run. Um, do you think you're going to ever move to Italy full time? If my wife will let me. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, Brian, I'll leave you go. It's been a pleasure. All right, man. The book God is bless. the book take is care. excellent. Thanks for talking to me. Uh, All right. Bye take man. care. Bye. But wait, there's more. Yep. Even though uh, that was the end of the allotted time, actually, I think they went over about five or ten minutes. Yeah, Brian has Richie Collin back. So guess what? You're getting another uh, 20-some-odd minutes of talk with Brian Wheat this week on Focus on Metal. Hello? Hey, Brian. It's Richie again. Yeah, I, you know, I was having a good time. So I figured, you know what? If you got a couple more questions. Yeah, I got a couple. I got a few. Okay. All right. Well, How steep a learning curve was it for you when you started managing the band? How steep a learning curve? Yeah. Like you, uh, you would have had expectations on how to do it and how easy or how hard it might be. I mean, I was I was the guy that always paid attention to Cliff and Peter, right? And 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 you know, I used to get shit from a couple of the guys. They just I was the manager's boy, you know, <laughs> because I'd say, you know, we should, you know, listen to them, whatever. So when we got back together in two thousand. Um, I had already kind of been managing my thing in Soul Motor, right? Yeah. 
so, you know, getting that band off the ground and all that stuff, you know, trying to get another record deal with that and the other. Um, so we had a couple guys try to manage the band. And I felt like I was always trying, I always had to tell them how to manage the band. You know, it's like, well, we should be doing this, we should be doing that, do this, that, and the other. And then finally, when I, I fired, you know, we fired Tom Zutat in 2006, I just immediately took over, but I was doing half the work, if not more of it anyway. You know, especially the years the Zutat was there. You know, he wasn't really a manager of a band. He's an A&R guy. Huh. You know, so I, 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 you know, just imagine you're on a plane and the pilot dies. I was, I jumped right in the seat and just kept flying. <laughs> um, did it strain any of your relationship with any of the other band members that, you had a bigger picture to oversee now rather than just being a guy who was in the band. I think Troy resented it at the time. Okay. I remember having, you know, a lot of discussions, if you will, with him about it at the time. What, what, you know, the, I don't know. What, I don't know if he feels that way today, but you know, um, I always felt like I always did the best for the band when I was in in that seat. I was always doing the best for the band. Yeah, I know I am, and I'll stand behind it. You know, I'll I'll dare anyone to say that I I didn't do the best for the band. Because there there's a couple of musicians I've spoken to, and they've gone from being in the band to managing them, and Danny Bowes from a band called Thunder in England to be one of them. And I, I asked him the same question, and, and he's been friends with the, the guys in Thunder since, like, they were kids. And he just says, like, you just have to put a different hat on. And he said the one thing he said you really have to do is explain it very well why you're doing it. Yeah, no, you do. You have to say, look, this is what we're doing, you know. Or this is what I think we should do, and this is why I think we should do it. Hmm. And, you know, I've always done that. You know, it wasn't, you know, I, I managed from an authoritarian position in any way, shape, or form. It was like, look, guys, this is what I think we should do, and this is why I think we should do it. And here's four examples of why I think we should do it. I was always like that. Okay. It just got too much. The reason I stopped was because, you know, my, my autoimmune disease, and there's a lot of stress managing the band, you know, a lot of pressure on you. If, uh, you know, you fuck up or you don't deliver, you know, you're the first guy to get played. (laughs) Yeah. Um, When you look back on the managers you had now in the past, and I'm not going to ask you to name the decision, who who made the decision, but was there one decision now you look back on in the past and say, what the hell were they thinking when they they did that? Um, I don't know. No, I, I, that'd be a question I have to put back on you. Is is there something we did that maybe you thought, "What the fuck were we doing?" Um, p- personally, on ask me. And then I could answer it. <laughs> well, uh, personally, I'm I'm not a big fan of the sound on the shock record. 
I love Def Leppard and I love you guys. And I know you've gotten this from other people as well. I think the songs are there. Mm-hmm. I, I don't like the sound of it, personally. Right. You think it sounds too much like Def Leppard? I, per- I personally do. And I love both bands. <laughs> um, well, you know, I, I, I'll tell you like I tell everybody. We were trying something different. Okay. Mm-hmm. You know, Phil was really enthused about producing a record with us. And, you know, we had just done this record, Simplicity. And I wasn't a big fan personally of the way that sounded. I thought it was underproduced. Right. So that's, that's like the thing with me is Frank. You know, he likes more raw and I like more produced right Uh so you know we we did it you know we we, uh, Mike was our manager at that time so it didn't really have anything to do with Mike it had it was a band decision everyone in the band was was keen on doing the record and you know you ask some guys in, in the band and they'll say they think you know, they think it's great. Yes, a couple of guys, I'm sure they'll say, you know, I know Frank wasn't a big fan of the record. Uh, you know, it was too produced for him. And Phil co-wrote every song with us, which I don't, I don't think, you know, he was too keen on. Um, but, you know, look, we did it. We tried it. It was something we, we tried. It's probably the most produced record we ever made. Maybe in a different time, it would have uh, did better. I mean, it didn't do drastically worse than any of the other records, you know, as far as sales-wise go. It did as good as as Simplicity. Uh, You know, so they they were kind of, you know, on par with each other. I mean, I know what you mean about the Def Leppard sounding things. I mean, there was a song called We Can Rule the World on the album, which was a song I wrote with Phil. And I thought the background sounded too much like Def Leppard and not enough like Tesla. And, you know, I had told that to Phil. And, you know, he just said, look, this is how you make a hit record, you know. And, you know, you got to remember, we spent a lot of time being hard-headed with other people who were trying to tell us. So we went, we went along with it. And I'm not saying he's right or, or we were wrong. It was just a different, a different, uh, a different record for us to make. Mm. Um, some people loved it. Uh, there are people like you that, that think it was too, too, didn't sound like Tesla enough. Hmm. But I think it, I think I my argument to that is well as soon as Jeff opens his fucking mouth it sounds like Tess. Yeah, it's him. <laughs> it's him. So you can tell me all day long that that record sounds like Jeff Leppard, but it, I don't hear Joe Elliott singing. I hear Jeff Keys singing. Yeah, Brian, did did you ever think some some of your albums in the past um, had too many songs on them that they were like seventy minutes long that you would have preferred maybe cutting it down to ten songs? Well, I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, of course, you know, I think, I think, you know, you, but you're so, 
into what you're doing at the time that you think everything is great. And, you know, that's, what do you do? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think shock is what is 12 or 10 on that one. I think that's 11 or 12. Right, I think that's the shortest album we've ever made. Yeah, I, I, um, I'm I'm particularly talking about when when the CDs really became prominent. You had 13 or 14 on Psychotic Supper. Well, yeah, and because Boston you had like 80 minutes. Yeah. you wanted to fill it up, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah and I remember that being a thing. And then I remember when we first started, you couldn't put more than 40 minutes on vinyl. You know, so it was kind of like you know the thing of a trade-off between the two. Uh, yeah, I'm sure that our records could have been a little bit shorter, but, you know, it's funny because, you know, you may say, well, you know, Psychotic Supper could have did stop this song and someone else would say, oh, that's my fucking favorite song. <laughs> that's my You favorite. know, so it's like... That's an amazing you album. You do what you do, you put it out there and, and you hope that people dig it, you know? Was that and, was that one of your ways of dealing with the competitiveness in the songwriting? That you had extra songs that you could, everybody would get their equal share of songwriting credits on the record. Um, I don't know about that. I think it was, you know, we were all jockeying for in a position. I think the strong songs always came to the top, and the weak ones always fell fell by the side. Um. You know, it's tough. It's tough because everyone was writing. You know, at least Frank and, and, and Tommy and myself wrote a lot of music and, and Jeff wrote all the lyrics. Troy had the occasional uh, thing where, you know, he wrote something. But, you know, the three of us, so we it was a little competitive there, I'm sure, yeah. We we um, the type of band that would have like 25, 30 songs and then whittle it down to 10 or 12, or would you just write 10 or 12? No, we'd have like 20, 25 music ideas, music bets. But Jeff would only finish, you know, 13, 12, 13, 14 of them. Okay. Yeah. So we've never had like a lot of extra songs. Okay. You know, there's, there's a couple of songs you know, from each record that didn't make it, you know, here or there. Mm. One of the things I love in the book, Brian, is you are pretty honest about what Tesla albums and songs you like and, and you don't like. Um, is that some something that, that's changed over time or has your stance on certain albums and songs always been like that? Mm. Well, there are some songs on Busting Out I didn't like that now I do like. Right, I think I said that. Yeah, in, in the book. What, what about that? What, what about what about the party's over? You say you don't, you're not a fan of that song. Were you not a fan of that song in '89? Not really, no. Okay. No, no. I mean, I'll tell you a funny story about that song. Um, that song almost kept Paradise off the album. Oh no! <laughs> yeah, I had to fight real hard to get Paradise on that album. That was the last song added to that album. Wow. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, in that sense, you know, I went to, went to, you know, went to battle for that song because it was obviously I wrote the music and Jeff wrote the lyrics. I thought it was a great song still do to this day. 
you know, just as I think Song and Emotion is a great song, and I didn't have anything to do with that outside of putting the bass on it. Mm. You know what I mean? So it's not a matter of, uh, well, I wrote that song, because I wrote some songs that I, I say I think are shit. Like, I think uh, The Gate Invited on Bust a Nut. I, I think, I, you know, at the time, I thought I was writing this band on the run kind of song. <laughs> Paul McCartney and I look at it now and I go, what the fuck was I thinking? <laughs> you know, but there's a couple of gems on there that I did did write and contribute to. And then there's a couple of them that are kind of okay. You know, um, but I think I've always had my favorites among my least favorites, you know. Uh, there's not that many I don't like. I mean, really, the only, you asked me earlier, is there one decision that was made that I wish we wouldn't have done? Yeah. And it was under Cliff and Peter, and it was put games people play on Bustin' Nut. Okay. I hated it. Hated it then, and hate it now. Hated it then, hated it now. Me and Frank hated it. And those guys were all saying, well, you know, it'll be another hit like Signs and... You know, it was to tell tell that the record the record company didn't really believe in the record. You know, because we recorded this other version of the ocean, and and uh, me and Frank wanted to put that on. And I remember we got you know they stuck us with putting games people play on there, which I think was a great song for Joe South, but you know it was too contrived what they were trying to do with Tesla. Yeah, when you bring a song to to the band. Is it fully formed? Like, do you tell the guys we're playing it this way and then they can fuck with it? Or are you bringing a half-formed idea in and then that, and then add to it? Well, I think I think um, it just depends. You know, I think I, I'll bring, you know, a skeleton of the song and then the band will work on it, you know, or, or Frank will. Frank probably brings the most complete things, you know, um, but then again, on shock, you know, I was, it was, it was different because I was working with Phil, you know, um, which was, it was kind of a different, you know, coming from a different place. So it, when I presented songs on, on, on shock, I presented them to Phil and then they got presented to the band. Okay. Right. So. Okay, you 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 mentioned a lot of all the producers you work with in, in the band, and you, you come across as the guy you want the musician, you want the guy that can come from behind the mixing desk, bring in a good instrument, and say this is what I'm looking for. Right, or you should do this, you know, you should change that chorus. Yeah. Okay, we should change the chorus, but you know, give me an idea of what or why should we change the chorus, not just you should change the chorus. Mm. Um, because that would leave us a bit like wondering, well, why? But if you were to grab a guitar or a piano or something and say, well, you could do something like this, for instance, you know, uh, I think that was important for us. Yeah. But Brian, who in the band do you think needs the most guidance now from a producer like that? I think we all do. You still all do, yeah? Yeah, I think if we tried to do it on our own, we go around in fucking circles. <laughs> Although having said that, I mean, we pretty much produced into the now because Michael was basically just the engineer, Michael Rosen. Yeah. So 
So maybe we could do it. I, I don't know. I, I, I think I got it in my mind that we couldn't. And Frank probably has it in his mind that we could, but I think we would argue a lot and that's what I just don't have the energy to do. You need a mediator. And you need a mediator. Cause I don't want to argue with somebody, you know, if I'm precious about a, a song or something. And, and it turns into a fucking, you know, fuck fest. Yeah. It's easier if there's someone else that says, well, look, you know, me being the objective guy in the room, you should do this or you should do that or try this or try that. Not that I don't think myself or Frank is capable of producing a record because I know we both are, but it's getting everyone else to listen. Yeah. And, and, you know, you got to remember, we all started in the same spot with the exception of Dave Ruth. So, you know, me, Frank, Jeff, and Troy, you know, we all started at the same time. So, you know, we just say to each other, what makes your opinion better than mine? And that's, we still have that. We still have, you know, egos and, and stuff. We're not pushovers. And thank God that we do have strong convictions when we when we're doing what we do. Mm. So I always think it's best to have someone outside of the band, you know, mediate. I wanted to work with Steve Thompson again. Um, That's interesting you bring his name up because he's the guy in the book that you signal out as being, what is he doing there kind of a guy? Well, I'd say that's what I thought in the beginning. Okay, In the beginning, we all kind of were like, what is he doing there? And as we grew older, we figured out what he was doing. <laughs> and I say that in the book, yeah. you know, but in, at the time, you know, it was hard to understand what he was doing, but he had a lot to do with, with those records. We just, it wasn't as obvious as maybe we thought it was. I think you need a balance of a guy who 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 knows how to use the board. Plus, he has to be a people person as well. And sometimes you need two people to do that. Yeah, I don't know about two people. I think you can do it with one. You know. Yep. Uh, I, I mean, I you know, I mean, I guess if you know, one guy is an engineer and one guy is a producer. Yeah. Or you know, in today's age, with you know, budgets being what they are and you got to kind of do everything on your own. Like I produce a lot of young bands. I have, you know, this development company and I develop young bands and I do it all. I, I engineer, produce and mix and I do it all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you need to be that kind of guy in today's world where you can do it all. Yeah. Because, you know, if, you know, I talked about the excess spending that we were doing back then and the budgets and, you know, you had the engineer, you had the producer, you had all these guys, you know. And I think today you got to be cost effective and, you know, you got to be one guy that can wear many hats. Mm-hmm. Brian, I have one question before I leave you go. There was a show you did on New Year's Eve, I think, in '91 in Japan with Metallica and Europe. Do you remember? Do you remember that show at all? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, was that? Do you have a favorite show that you've ever done in the past? One that stands out and says, "Yeah, the band were really cooking when you did that show." Is that anyone that stands out? 
Well, I, I think the favorite show we ever did was the reunion show in 2000. For the mere fact that, you know, we were getting back together and there was a lot of good vibes in the room, a lot of good will, good intentions. And, you know, that, that one always sticks out. The Marquee Club. In London. In London, when we did the two nights at the Marquee, stood out. Texas Jam stood out. That's where White Snake, wasn't it? In 80, 88? Yeah, and Aerosmith. Yeah, and yeah. That one was a big one. Um, Hammersmith Odeon. In London. Def Leppard. Yeah, that, that was a big one. I I I should have gone and seen you guys when you when you played with Leopard over in Belfast. I think um, I was 16 years old and I uh, I was a little bit too young to go. Yeah. So I I had to wait to see you guys until you played in Dublin with Journey, White Snake, and uh, Def Leopard in in 2009. I'd say you were on mm. you were on the bill. You only had half an hour and you weren't even on the ticket. Yeah, we were good that day. You were very good. You only had half an hour, and I was pissed. I was like, "Shit!" <laughs> yeah, no, we played. We played like six songs. Yeah, yeah, you were on Forevermore yeah. the tour. Yeah, we opened up with "I Want to Live." I you did, you did, you did, and yeah, I've I've, I've gotten to see you here a few times since I moved here. So, hopefully, the next yeah. time you're around, I'll uh, I'll be able to say hello to you. All right, my man. Well, look, I had fun, man. This was a, it was a fun interview. That's why I called you back. Yeah, Brian. Normally I would have just fucked off. <laughs> That's okay. All right, Brian. Well, listen, stay safe. I'll see you, and I'll see you out there eventually. Okay. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye. There you go. Our chat with Brian Wheat of Tessel, all about his brand new book, Son of a Milkman, My Crazy Life with Tesla. Go out and pick yourself up a copy of that. Don't think you'll be disappointed, especially if you are a Tesla fan. A little bummed that on the cover of the book, he's posing with the Hofner Beatles bass instead of a Gibson Thunderbird, because that's the other one that he plays quite a bit. But, you know, I understand it. I understand the Beatles connection and all that. I just thought it would have been way cooler if he had been uh, posed with a T-Bird. Anyways, just a small nit to pick there, and uh, that's just my own little personal bias. Anyways, good to be back on the air once again, and I got to say that it was really nice towards the end of last year, even with the total shit year that it was, that the show actually made a few best-of lists and recommended listening for uh, 2021 Always cool to uh, get some of that kind of stuff, that feedback, and know that uh, people are listening and people are liking what they're hearing. And maybe we're finding our niche in this uh, just a massively growing podcast world and shows that are out there. It's insane the amount of stuff that's there. But some of those lists, we look at the company that we're keeping on them. And some of them, that's you know, it's big name guys that uh, either have shows that have been on for a lot longer than us or even people at the, you know, record contracts and all that good stuff. So uh, it's cool, and we appreciate all of that kind of stuff. It's good. It keeps us going, especially because we don't make a damn dime doing this. We just like bringing this stuff to you each and every week, and, uh, you know, in some cases, preserving the history of hard rock and metal with the people that we talk to. And also, Victor, big shout-out to you, buddy. Thanks for everything uh, you do 
And I honestly feel that uh, you deserve to be on those things much more than we do. But uh, hopefully, we'll be there next year, and you'll be there with us. And I urge all you guys out there to check out Victor on his Mars Attacks show, as well as all the other stuff that he puts out. So I know you're asking, Scott, what is in store for us next week? Guess what? No idea. We've got some stuff. Like I said, Richie's been hard at work. He's... uh, been doing a bunch of different things and so uh you know we have a little variety pack of things to choose from i just haven't figured it out yet it's just been amazing that i was able to carve out enough time right now to actually get everything together and get a show out you know part of this is getting back into that workflow and stuff but it's just been once again the the shit show year that was 2020 is carrying right over into 2021 for, uh, for both Richie and myself, certainly do appreciate uh, you know all the stuff that Richie did over break, though. So we were able to come back with some good stuff. And we also have some leftover audio from before break as well that we're going to put into shape and get into your little metal ear holes. But for this week, that's it. There ain't no more. Stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal, thanks once again for the support for listening, for all that good stuff. Be a great metal fan. Go out, buy physical copies, support the artists as much as you can. Let's try to make sure we keep metal going through all this crap that's going on right now. And we'll be back with you once again next week for more of Focus on Metal. But until then, as always, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.